0: Chapter Four of Around the Camp Fire by Charles Roberts. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Chapter Four More of Camp Desquatook. Part Two The Dogs of the Drift. The very home of visions and strange traditions and mysteries is Newfoundland, that great half explored island in the wild North Atlantic here the iron coast harborless for league upon league opposes a black perpendicular front to the vast green seas which slowly and unceasingly beneath their veil of fogs roll in and fall in thunder amidst its pinnacles and caverns at wide intervals the cliffs give way a little forming narrow coves and havens so limited that scarce a score of fishing-boats can find safe harborage therein in almost every such cove may be found a tiny settlement remote from the world utterly shut in upon itself save during the brief months of summer with no ideas but what spring from its people's daily toil and from the stupendous aspects surrounding nature is it strange that to such simple and lonely souls the wild elements become instinct with strange life and seem to dominate their thoughts and their existence for them the driving mists are filled with apparitions the gnarled and wind-beaten firs take on strange features in the dusk through the ravings of the gale against those towering cliffs comes to their ears a hubbub of articulate voices mingled with the cries of the baffled seabirds men dwelling under such influences are imaginative if left in ignorance they grow of necessity superstitious the mouths of these islanders overflow with unearthly tales nearly all of which may be traced to the workings of some natural force but their faith in these fancies is as unquestioning as our acceptance of the word that the world is round what were variously known to the islanders as the dogs of the drift the white dogs and the gray dogs i heard of all over the island as went the tale generally and ever with bated breath these beings were a team of gigantic dogs lean and pale in colour driven furiously by a gaunt woman in flowing garments of white they were said to appear to travellers caught journeying in a storm and to dash past with shrill howls when the storm was at its highest never closer did they come than within a stone's throw but their coming meant death ere sunset to one or another of those met by the apparition in the winter of eighteen eighty eight a fire took place in the out harbor where i was then living and a large part of the winter stores were destroyed to our secluded settlement this was an overwhelming calamity and there was nothing for it if we should escape actual starvation but to send someone for supplies to harbor britain the journey was one of great difficulty and hardship some hundred and odd miles to be traversed through an unbroken wilderness and the only means of conveyance a dog-team and a sledge being young and venturesome and ever on the search for a new experience i volunteered for the service taking with me my man mike conley a keen hunter and one well-skilled in driving dogs our team was a powerful one led by a great black and white fellow whom the other dogs devotedly obeyed with provision for ourselves and team with blankets and the other necessaries of such a trip our long sledge was well loaded down and we took with us money to buy supplies as well as pay the transportation of them back to the famishing settlement we marched on snowshoes for the most part save over those open stretches of plain where the crust had hardened like ice and where the dogs were able at a brisk gallop to draw both ourselves and their load at such times exhilarated by the swift motion in that keen air and sparkling sunshine the hardships of our journey were forgotten and we thrilled under the beauty of the glittering world of white but far otherwise was it when our course lay as it generally did through juniper swamps and tangled accumulation of forest growths then a whole day's severest toil advanced us but a few miles on our way the dogs floundering in the drifts and gullies would get their traces into an almost hopeless snarl and many a beating the poor brutes brought upon themselves by the dangerous temper they displayed under such annoyances they were a fierce and wolfish pack and a strong hand we were compelled to keep over them our nights when it was fine and calm were pleasant enough as we lay wrapped in many blankets around our fire our custom was to dig a deep hollow in the snow and floor it with soft boughs leaving a space at one side for the fire such a camp nestled in a thick grove of var or spruce was snug in all ordinary weather but sometimes the rage of the gale would make a fire impossible the wind gusts would fairly shatter it to bits and bursting in upon us from every quarter drive the brands and coals all over the camp there was then nothing left for us but to smother the remnants with snow and huddled all together in a heap men dogs and blankets to await wretchedly the coming of the stormy dawn always on such occasions would mike who was superstitious to the fingertips be looking out in fascinated expectation for the dreadful grey dogs at each yelling blast he strained his eyes through the dark till from laughing at him i grew angry and he was constrained to hide his fears i represented to him that as long as he kept his eyes beneath his blanket these dogs of the drift need have no terrors for him even though they come the whole night long and career about the camp for the portent only applied to those beholding it this view of the case however was but little relief to him as his fears were no less on my account than on his own notwithstanding one or two such grim experiences, all went well with us, till our journey was two-thirds done, and the hardest of the way lay behind us. Then, as we floundered one afternoon through a deadwood swamp, Mike slipped between two fallen trunks and broke his left arm near the shoulder. This was a most unlooked-for blow, but the poor fellow bore it like a hero. With rude splints I set the arm and bandaged it, and after a day's halt i fixed him a sort of bed on the sledge so that we were enabled to continue our journey but now we were forced to make long detours in order to avoid rough country on the following morning to our satisfaction we came out upon a chain of lakes which promised us something like fair going for a while in a sheltered place on the shore we found a rude cabin occupied by two hunters who had their traps set in the surrounding woods neither the faces nor the manner of these men did i find prepossessing but they received us hospitably fed us well and pressed us to stay with them overnight. not unnaturally they were curious as to the motives of our strange journey and before i could give him a hint of warning my garrulous and fearless mike had put him in possession of the whole story the greedy look of intelligence which passed furtively between them upon learning we were on the way to purchase stores aroused all my suspicions and set me sharply on my guard their hospitality now became doubly pressing in fact when they saw me bent on immediate departure they grew almost threatening in their earnestness at this assuming an angry air i asked them why they should so concern themselves about what was entirely my own business and i gave them plainly to understand that i wanted no interference changing their tone at once and deprecating my warmth they called to my notice the storm that was gathering overhead they were right the signs could hardly be mistaken the little bursts and eddies of drift that rose fitfully from the lake's white surface the long whispering sob of gusts that woke at intervals behind the forest the heavy but vague massing of clouds all over the sky which at a little distance was confused with the earth by a sort of pearly haze all pretended a hurricane of snow before many hours with reason on their side and the evident desire of my wounded mike as well our host urged delay till the storm should have spent its fury but silencing mike with a glance i rejected politely but decidedly their proffered shelter and made ready the team for a start as soon as i had begun to tackle the dogs the younger of our hosts suddenly took up his gun and left the cabin saying he thought he'd better visit a few traps before the storm set in he turned i noticed down the shore of the lake parallel to the direction in which our own course lay the older man speeded our departure with all seeming good will announcing that he only waited to see us safely off and would then follow his partner to examine the traps once under way i retailed my suspicions to mike who heedless as he was had been putting this and that together during the last few minutes bitterly he bewailed his helplessness and many and varied were the maledictions which from his couch in the blankets he hurled upon our prospective foes at his suggestion we shunned the wooded shore taking our course as nearly as possible down the middle of the lake with my rifle in one hand and my long-lashed whip in the other i urged the team to such a pace as it strained my running powers to keep up with the snow was soft and for the dogs as for myself the work was too severe to last but my aim was if possible to settle with the first ruffian who had it seemed likely undertaken to head us off before the second could overtake and join forces with him but suddenly, with a whistle and a biting blast, the storm was upon us. For a moment the dogs cowered down in their tracks, and then we were fain to hug the shore for shelter. The shelter was not much, for the storm seemed to rage from all quarters, yet, breathless and blinded though we were, we were able to make some headway. At a momentary lull between the gusts, we rounded a sharp headland and entered a long, narrow passage between the shore and a wooded island a likely place enough for the murderin thief exclaimed mike but we plunged ahead the words had scarcely left his mouth when the snow seemed to rise thinly about us in a thousand spirals and whirls a tremendous wind drove down the channel and smote us in the face with a long confused yelping howl which made my flesh creep with its resemblance to a cry of dogs our team trembled terribly and lay down the gray dogs came in a hoarse cry from mike's lips and at the same moment there swept past us in the heart of the whirlwind a pack of wild huddling and leaping drifts followed by a tall bent woman-like figure of snow cloud which seemed to stoop over and urge on their furious flight the vision vanished the shrill clamor died away over the open reaches of the lake and shaking off my tremor i cheered our dogs again to the road but as for mike he was overwhelmed with horror he would admit no doubt but that one of us must die before nightfall and for my own part i felt that our circumstances lent only too ugly a color to his fancy a succession of fitful though not violent gusts confronted us through our whole course up this defile the air was white with fine snow and we made but meagre headway it must have been about half a mile that we had covered since seeing the apparition when we were startled by a sharp report just ahead of us and instantly our dogs stopped short and fell into wild confusion springing to their heads i found the great black and white leader in his death struggle bleeding upon the snow cut the traces cried mike and though not comprehending his purpose i stooped to do so it was well for me i obeyed as i stooped a shot snapped behind us and the shrill whimper of a bullet sang past my ear at the same moment the gust subsiding i saw our first assailant step boldly out of cover just ahead of us and raise his gun to shoulder for a second shot but i had severed the traces there was a sort of fierce hiss from mike's tongue and with a yell the whole team sprang forward to avenge their leader the ruffian realizing at once his peril discharged his gun wildly threw it down and fled for his life but he was too late in briefer space i think than it takes to tell it the pack was upon him he was literally torn to pieces with whip and gunstock, i threw myself upon the mad brutes who presently as if satisfied with their dreadful revenge followed me back in submission to their places as for the second scoundrel he had taken swift warning and vanished the dogs themselves seemed cowed by what they had done and for my own part i was filled with horror but no such weak sentimentality found the slightest favour with mike rebuking me for having beaten them he lavished praise and endearments upon the dogs he reminded me moreover that they had saved the lives of both of us or had at the very least saved myself from the necessity of taking blood upon my hands realizing this i made hasty amends to the poor shivering brutes comforting them with a liberal feast of dried dogfish my present feeling toward them as i look back upon the episode is one of unmitigated gratitude the rest of our journey was accomplished without more than ordinary trouble a good deal of my spare energy i wasted in the effort to overturn mike's faith which stands still unshaken in the supernatural character of the dogs of the drift with such terrible testimony in his favor i could hardly have expected much success for my arguments for as he concluded triumphantly if the spectral team came down that channel as it plainly did then the scoundrel lying in wait for us must have seen it as well as we and did not he meet his doom before nightfall if that's what you call a merry tale said ranolf then the one i'm going to tell you of newfoundland will make your eyes drop weeping tears it concerns the fate of ben christie's bull caribou ben christie was the first mate of the little coasting steamer garnet of the newfoundland coastal service born in one of those narrow out harbors that wedge themselves in somewhere between the cliffs and the gray sea his eyes had been bent seaward from the beginning inland all was mystery to him alluring mystery he had never been out of sight of the sea except when the fog was too thick for him to distinguish it as he leaned over the vessel's rail he had grown up with a cod-line in his hands in his eyes the alternation of fog and flashing sunlight in his ears the scream of the sea-fowl and the shattering thunder of the surf upon the cliffs of his native island he knew little but the seaward faces of her rocky ramparts over which he had often climbed to gather the eggs of puffin and gannet of towns he knew but the wharves and waterfronts of st john's and halifax and harbor grace but he was at home in his dory as it climbed the sullen purple-green slopes of the great waves on the banks and he knew how to follow the seal and triumph over the perils of the floating fields one day in halifax in a little inn on water street ben christie saw the stuffed and mounted head of a well antlered bull caribou it fired his fancy and from that day forth to shoot a bull caribou became his consuming ambition when he had been serving as mate of the garnet for about two years the boiler of that redoubtable craft refused to perform its functions and she was laid up in st john's harbour for repairs christie's opportunity had come he furbished up his old muzzle-loading sealing-gun long of barrel and huge of bore and took passage on a little coasting schooner bound for the west shore and the mouth of the codroy river arriving at the cadroy he remained in the settlement for a few days looking for a suitable comrade to go with him into the interior when his errand became known which was right speedily seeing that he could talk of nothing but bull caribou he found plenty of practiced hunters ready to accompany him on his quest but none of these were quite to his liking they all knew too much they seemed to him to be impressed with the idea that he did not know anything about caribou hunting and they talked about getting him the finest pair of horns on the barrens now just what ben wanted was to get those horns himself he wanted to do the shooting himself and the hunting himself and he did not want anyone around to patronize him and deride his mistakes ben was off on a holiday and he felt himself entitled to make mistakes if he wanted to at length he met a harum-scarum little irishman named mike slohan who said he doted on hunting but couldn't hit anything smaller than a barn door and wouldn't know to use his own phrase a spruce caribou from a bull partridge ben took him to his heart at once and without delay the pair made ready for their expedition inextinguishable was the mirth of all the experienced hunters and grievous were the mishaps they prophesied for our amateur nimrods till at last ben's keen blue eyes began to flash dangerously and they judged it prudent to check their jibes whatever mike slohan's inefficiency as a hunter he was as fearless as a grizzly and he understood to its minutest detail the art of camping out with comfort he armed himself only with a little muzzle-loading shotgun but in other respects the two went well equipped when mike declared that all was ready he and ben embarked in a canoe they had hired in the settlement and started gaily up the river after ascending the main stream some fifty or sixty miles they turned into a small tributary which flows into the codroy from the northward this stream ran between precipitous banks often more than a hundred feet in height its deep and gloomy ravine was chiseled through a vast table-land without landmark or limit scourged by every wind that blows this inexpressibly bleak region mike declared to be the barrens where they would find the caribou into its depths they penetrated till their way was barred by fierce rapids at the foot of which they made their camp in a warm and windless cove it was well on in the autumn a season when the bull caribou are very pugnacious whence it came that ben christie had not long to wait before finding himself face to face with the object of his desire the first day's hunting however was fruitless leaving the camp after a by no means early or hasty breakfast ben and mike climbed the great wall of the ravine and no sooner were they fairly out upon the level waste than they descried three caribou feeding about half a mile away this to ben seemed quite a matter of course nevertheless he was exhilarated at the sight and set out in hot pursuit followed by the laughing mike they made no secret of their approach but advanced in plain view as if they were driving cattle in a pasture and the caribou being in a pleasant humor and willing to avoid disturbance discreetly withdrew after pursuing them for three or four miles ben gave up the chase much disappointed to find the animals so wild when the hunters started to return to the river they were astonished to find no sign of a river or the course of one anywhere in the landscape mike at once concluded that they were lost but ben was not troubled he had the sun to steer by and was amply satisfied indeed he felt much at home on the barrens where as he said there was plenty of sea-room and a chap could breathe free he shaped his course confidently for the camp and fetched the river as unerringly as if it had been a port on the south shore the barrens which cover so large a portion of the interior of newfoundland vary somewhat in character in different parts of the island where ben and mike were investigating them they were covered with wide patches of a sturdy stunted shrub called locally scronic. this scronic played a most important part in the experiences which presently befell the hunters it grows about shoulder high at its highest and spreads out like a miniature banyan tree its twisted stems are bare to a height of about two to three feet and its top so densely matted as almost to shut out the light the shrub is an evergreen a remote cousin to the juniper and its stems are wide enough apart for one to freely crawl about between them when one is caught in a storm on the barrens the schronach patches make no mean shelter scattered thinly amid the schronach stood bald white granite boulders from two or three to ten or twelve feet high and here and there lay deep pools cup-shaped hollows filled to the brim with transparent icy water ah said mike as they climbed down the ravine to the camp but it's a queer country." to ben however all dry land was queer so he hardly comprehended mike's remark on the following day before they set out for the hunt a council of war was held said ben you see the critters won't let us get nigh enough to fire them afore they clear out and then where are we sure and we'll hide in the chronic replied mike and shoot em as they go by and maybe they won't go by just to oblige us suggested ben i reckon we'd have to get down so they can't see us and crawl upon 'em. em these tactics decided upon the hunters mounted to the plain enthusiastic and sanguine eagerly they scanned the bleak reaches not a caribou was there in sight ben's face fell and he heaved a mighty sigh of disappointment but mike was not so easily cast down come on said he cheerily and we'll find the baits before you know where they are with their guns over their shoulders they picked their way through the scronic for a couple of hundred yards till suddenly out from behind a boulder not twenty paces in front of them stepped a huge bull caribou the caribou was solitary and in a very bad humor. He shook his spreading antlers and snorted ominously. "'You shoot, he yourn!' shouted Mike in wild excitement, brandishing his gun at full cock over his head. Proudly, Ben raised his long weapon to his shoulder and pulled the trigger. There was no marked result, however, as he had forgotten to cock the gun. Just as he hastily remedied this oversight, the caribou charged madly ben fired and missed he'll kill ya dodge him in the scronic yelled mike and obediently ben dived into the nearest patch acting upon a natural instinct he scurried from side to side to throw his pursuer off the track the caribou sprang furiously upon the bushes where ben had disappeared and trampled them with his knife-like front HOOFS. then he turned on mike who had been anxiously waiting for him to keep still and give him a fair shot in desperation mike fired just grazing the animal's flank and then he darted like a rabbit under the scrawnick's bushes when those deadly forehoofs came down on the place where he had vanished the little irishman was not there nimbly and noiselessly he put all the distance he could between himself and the spot where he heard his enemy tearing away at the scrawnick finding himself unpursued ben made haste to reload his gun at the sound of mike's shot he thrust his head out of his hiding-place in time to see his comrade go under cover very deliberately ben rammed the bullet home and put on the cap then standing up to his full height and taking aim at the caribou's hind quarters which were towards him he shouted load up mike and fired again Unfortunately for the accuracy of Ben's aim, the caribou had wheeled sharp round at the sound of his voice, and charged without an instant's delay. So again the shot went wild, and again, with alacrity that did credit to his bulk, Ben scuttled under the scrawnick. But this time the indignant bull, furious at being thus outwitted, bounded into the bush, and began thrusting about at random with horns and hoofs more than once Ben narrowly escaped those terrible weapons and his trepidation began to be mingled with fierce wrath at the idea of being hustled round this way by a critter he could get no chance to load up again and he was on the point of stepping forth and attacking the animal with the butt of his gun he felt as if he was battened under hatches in a sinking ship before he could put his purpose into effect however there was another shot from mike It evidently struck the animal somewhere, for he bellowed with rage as he bounded over the thickets to join battle with his other assailant. The Irishman had not waited to mark the result of his shot, but had plunged instantly out of sight, and betaken himself to a position well removed. The angry bull had no idea of his whereabouts, but thrashed about wildly, while the little Irishman chuckled in his sleeve as soon as ben once more got his gun loaded he stuck his head up through the skronic he observed that in his wanderings beneath the scrub he had worked his way very nearly to the big granite boulder before mentioned he did not fire for he was resolved not to waste his shot this time just as he made up his mind to try a rush for the boulder from the top of which he would be master of the situation the caribou looked up and caught sight of him again the animal's charge was so lightning-like in its rapidity that ben could do nothing but dive once more beneath the kindly skronic as fast as he could he worked his way toward the boulder but in his haste the movement of the bushes betrayed him one of the razor-edged hoofs came down within a foot or two of his face and he shrank back swiftly making himself very small His changed course brought him to the very brink of one of the deep pools already spoken of, and he almost fell into it. In turning aside from that obstacle, the shaking of the bushes again gave the bull a hint of his position. With a cough and a bellow, the animal leaped to the spot, just missed Ben's retiring feet, and plunged headlong into the pool. This seemed to Ben just his opportunity for gaining the rock. He sprang up and made a dash for it but before he reached its foot and a glance told him that it was not to be scaled on that side the caribou had picked himself nimbly out of the water and was after him his fury by no means dampened by the ducking grinding his teeth ben darted yet again beneath the scrub but this time it was the closest shave he had had the skronic was thinner here and he would hardly have succeeded in evading his antagonist for more than a minute had not mike come to the rescue the irishman rose up with a wild yell discharged his gun right in the caribou's face missed with his customary facility and dropped again into the skronic the foaming animal dashed away to hunt him and Ben, creeping stealthily around the boulder, found its accessible side and scrambled to the summit as the caribou came bounding to its base. If the boulder had been a very few feet lower, the adventure might have had a very different issue, but as it was, the height proved sufficient. Ben surveyed those spear-sharp prongs from his point of vantage, just three feet beyond reach of their vicious thrusts and thought proudly how fine they would look mounted in the cabin of the garnet he was in no great hurry to end the performance and he did not like to fire while the caribou was so close to the muzzle of the gun but presently the animal paused and looked around for mike he turned in fact as if to go and hunt the little irishman again and ben's heart smote him for having even for a moment forgotten the peril in which his comrade yet remained he took careful aim at a point close behind the caribou's shoulder at the report the animal sprang straight into the air and fell back stone dead very triumphant quite pardonably so in fact were ben and mike as they returned to the codroy settlement with their spoils they discreetly refrained from detailing at codroy all the particulars of the hunt but if the tourist exploring the coast of newfoundland in the steamer garnet chances to remark upon the immense pair of caribou antlers which hang over the cabin door he will hear the whole story from ben christie who is endowed with an excellent sense of humor when Ranoff ended he received unusual applause then i stepped so to speak into the breach i cannot hope said i to win the ears of this worshipful company with such gentle humour as ranolf has just achieved but i have a good rousing adventure to tell you with lots of blood though little thunder the scene of it is not far from newfoundland let this fact speak in its favour fire away old man said queerman i take for my narrative the simple title of labrador wolves said i in early june two years ago my friend jack rawlings of the canada geological survey was occupied in exploring parts of the labrador coast from the mouth of the moisek river eastward the following adventure one of several that befell him in that wild region has a peculiar interest from its possible connection with a throng of terrible legends the scenes of which are laid along those shores ever since the gulf of st lawrence became known to the fishing fleets of brittany and the basque provinces its northeastern coast has been peopled by the vivid imaginations of the fishermen and sailors with supernatural beings of various fashions all agreeing however in the attributes of malignity and noisiness demons and griffins and monsters indescribable were supposed to haunt the bleak hills and dreadful ravines ships driven reluctantly inshore by stress of weather were wont to carry away strange tales of howlings and visions to freeze the marrow of the folk at home the probable origin of those myths may be found in the fact that from time to time the coast has been ravaged by hordes of gigantic gray wolves sweeping down from the unfathomed wilderness of the high interior plateau one of these visitations was in eighteen seventy three when many of the coast dwellers whose scanty settlements cling here and there in the lonely harbors were torn to pieces on the shore or shut up in their cabins till starvation stared them in the face no great stretch of fancy is required to metamorphose a pack of ravening wolves into a yelling concourse of demons what befell jack rawlings i will tell in his own words our schooner said jack lay at anchor in a little landlocked bay where never a wind could get at her and much of our exploration was done by means of short boat trips in one direction or the other one morning frank jones and i made up our minds to take a day off and try and kill a salmon or two about five miles west of where we lay there was a cove where behind a low rocky point a little river came down out of the mountains half a mile above the head of tide the stream fell noisily over a shallow fall into a most enticing pool and we calculated that we would be just in good time for the first run of the salmon there was a stretch of shoals off the mouth of the stream and no sheltered anchorage near so we took the small boat for the trip and a fresh breeze off the gulf blew us to our destination speedily it was high tide when we arrived and we hauled up the boat in the cove under shelter of the point besides our rods we had enough grub for a good lunch and our topcoats in case it should blow up cold in the afternoon frank had brought his gun along with a few cartridges loaded with number one and number two shot in case he might want to shoot some big bird for his collection which is already one of the best private collections in ottawa when we had put our rods together we moved up along the wet edges of the beach which glistened in the morning sun and presently found ourselves at the basin where we expected our sport over the low foaming barrier of the falls we saw a salmon make way in a flashing leap and we knew we had struck both the right place and the right time i need not tell you the particulars of the sport you know what a Labrador salmon stream is when you happen to take it in a good humour enough to say when we began to think of lunch it was about two o'clock and we had six fish ranging from ten to thirty-five pounds lying in splendid array beneath a neighbouring rock as much of our spoils as we could carry at once we took down to the spot where the boat lay and building a little fire of driftwood we proceeded to fry some salmon collops for lunch while enjoying our after-dinner smoke we observed that the wind had shifted a point or two to the east and was blowing up half a gale great scott exclaimed frank if we don't get under way from here right off we're going to be storm stayed this wind will raise a sea presently that we won't be able to face let's leave right off i'll drag the boat down to the water while you go after the rest of those fish no no said i we'll just stay where we are for the present don't you see that the waves are already breaking into the cove too heavy for us if you were around on the other side of the point now you'd see what the water is and you'd be glad enough you're out of it i can tell you we're all right here and we may as well fish till toward sundown and if the wind has not eased off by that time we'll just have to snug the boat up here and foot it over the hills to the schooner it's not more than five or six miles away frank strolled across the point for a look at the sea and came back in agreement with my views then we returned to the pool and whipped it assiduously till after five o'clock but without a repetition of the morning's success meanwhile the wind got fiercer and fiercer so we went back to the boat and made a hearty supper as preparation for the rough tramp that lay before us we took our time and smoked at leisure and cashed our prizes and resolved not to start till moonrise by this time the tide was well out and the cove had become an expanse of shingly flats threaded by the shallow current of the stream and fringed along its seaward edge with a line of angry surf by and by the moon got up out of the gulf round and white and bringing with her an extra blow as the shore brightened up clearly we set out moving along the crest of the point frank was just saying how spectral those scarred gray hills look in this light how suitable a place for the hobgoblins those old frenchmen imagine to possess them when as if to point his remarks there came a ghostly clamor high and quavering from a dark cleft far up the mountainside we both started and i exclaimed the loons have overheard you old fellow and are trying to work on your nerves they want revenge for the stuffed companions of their bygone days that's not loons said frank very seriously it's no more like loons than it's like lions listen to that i listened and was convinced then it must be those old frenchmen's friends i suggested and i feel greatly inclined to avoid meeting them if possible it's the wolves from the interior rejoined frank i'd rather have the griffins and goblins don't you remember seventy-eight i'm afraid we're in a box let us get down to windward of the point and lie low among the rocks i suggested as likely as not the brutes won't detect us and will keep along up the shore instantly we dropped into concealment keeping through the apertures of the crest a fearful eye upon the mountain slopes we were fools to be sure for we might have known those keen eyes had spotted us from the first silhouetted as we had been against the moonlit sea presently frank suggested the boat but my sufficient answer was to point to the raging surf so we lay still and prayed to be ignored in a few minutes our suspense was painfully relieved by the appearance of a pack of gray forms which swept out into the moonlight beyond the river and came heading straight for our refuge two dozen of em gasped frank and they certainly spotted us i whispered there's not a tree nor a hole we can get into muttered frank we can get on top of this rock and fight for it i groaned in desperation i have it exclaimed frank the boat we'll get under it and hold it down leaping to our feet we broke wildly for the boat the wolves greeted us with an exultant howl as they dashed through the shallow river we had just time to do it comfortably The boat was heavy, and we turned it over in such a way that the bow was steadied between two rocks. Once safely underneath, we lifted the craft a little, and jammed her between the rocks, so that the brutes would be unable to root her over. One side was raised about eight or ten inches by a piece of rock which Frank was going to remove, but I stopped him. By this time the brutes were on top of the boat, and we could hear by the snarling that they had unearthed our salmon just then a row of long snouts and snapping jaws came under the gunwale and we shrank as small as possible the brutes shoved and struggled so mightily that it seemed as if they must succeed in overturning the boat and a cold sweat broke out on my forehead shoot i yelled frantically and at the same instant my ears were almost burst by the discharge of both frank's barrels A terrific yelping and howling ensued, while our crowded quarters were filled to suffocation with the smoke. When the air cleared somewhat, we could see that the wolves were eating the two whose heads Frank's shot had shattered. Our position was very cramped and uncomfortable, half sitting, half lying, between the thorts, but by stretching flat we could peer beneath the gunwale and command a view of the situation. We had a moment's respite frank said i we might as well be eaten as scared to death don't fire that gun again in here it nearly blew my eardrums in club the brutes over the snout all that's necessary is to disable them and it seems their kind companions will do the rest all right responded frank only you must do your share and he passed me up the hatchet out of the cuddy hole in the bow by this time the slaughtered wolves were reduced to hair and bones, and the pack once more turned their attention to us. Once more the ominous row of heads appeared, squeezed under the boatside, and claws tore madly at the roof that sheltered us. As combatants, our positions were exceedingly constrained, but so too were those of our assailants. A wolf cannot dodge well when his head is squeezed under a gunwale hampered as i was i smashed the skulls of the two within easiest reach barking my knuckles villainously as i wielded my weapon i heard frank too pounding viciously up in the bow then the attack drew off again and the feasting and quarrelling recommenced i turned to make some remark to my companion but gave a yell of dismay instead as i felt a pair of iron jaws grab me by the foot and tear away the sole of my boot in the excitement of the contest my foot had gone too near the gunwale the wolves were now growing too wary to thrust their heads under the gunwale for a time they merely sniffed along the edge and though we might easily have smashed their toes or the ends of their noses we refrained in order to gain opportunity for something more effective we must have waited thus for as much as ten minutes and the inaction was becoming intolerable when the brutes thinking perhaps we were dead or gone to sleep made a sudden concerted effort to reach us there must have been a dozen heads at once thrust in beneath the gunwale one preternaturally lean wolf even wriggled his shoulders fairly through so that he was within an ace of taking a mouthful out of my leg before i could have a fair blow at him with my hatchet i think we either killed or disabled four at least in that assault thereupon the pack drew off a little and sat down on their haunches to consider they could not possibly have been still hungry having eaten two or three wolves and a hundred pounds or so of nice fresh salmon and we were in hopes they would go away but instead of that they came back to the boat and set up a tremendous howling which may have been a call for reinforcements or a challenge to come out and settle the trouble in a square fight i asked frank how many cartridges he had left oh he said a dozen or more at least verily well said i you'd better blaze away and kill as many as you can i'll protect my eardrums by stuffing my ears full of rags try and make every shot tell as the wolves were not more than eight or ten feet away the heavy birdshot had the same effect as a bullet two of the brutes were clean bowled over then the others sprang furiously about the boat when frank thrust forth the muzzle of the gun it was seized and all but wrenched from his grasp he bagged two more then the rest moved round to the other side of the boat but very soon the survivors appeared to make up their minds to a new departure and after a little running hither and thither with their noses down they suddenly crystallized as it were into a well-ordered pack and swept away up the shore Their strange, terrible, wind-like uulations were soon re-echoing in the mountains. We came forth from our uncomfortable but effectual retreat, and counted our victims. When the last sound of the howling had long died away, we set forth in the direction of the schooner, which was not the direction in which the wolves were journeying. End of chapter 4, part 2